This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to After the Buzzer. I am Bob Wallace, chair of the sports law practice at Thompson Coburn in St. Louis. We specialize in representing entities and people with sports interests, whether it's acquisitions, facility representations, real estate deals, and contract negotiations. Our lawyers are in offices in St. Louis, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Dallas, or New York, and they all have experience in these areas that often fit into what we call the sports law space. We have taken some time off from these podcasts, but our topic today, negotiations, is very timely, both in the political world with the debt ceiling talks and the sports world with the very interesting negotiation between Lamar Jackson, who is representing himself and the Baltimore Ravens. My guest today is Maury Taharipour, who in our very informative book on negotiations, Bring Yourself, How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly, says she is not an expert in negotiations, just a negotiator. But she gives us some real expert advice on how negotiations affects all aspects of one's life and how you can be more effective negotiator for yourself or your clients. I have known Maury for a long time, in fact, close to two decades, and every time we interact, I learn something. Maury is globally recognized negotiation scholar, an award-winning faculty member at the Wharton School, and as mentioned above, the author of Bring Yourself, How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiation Fearlessly. Maury has over 20 years of experience in negotiations, DEI, and sports business and maintains an impressive roster of clients that includes Fortune 100 companies, major sports leagues, leading charitable institutions, and government agents. Maury has been featured on ESPN, in Forbes magazine, Marketplace, Money, NPR, and the next chapter by American Express, and regularly contributes to discussions on Wharton Business Daily, which can be heard on Sirius XM. She's a member of the board of directors for USA Track and Field, and the advisory board of the Sports Leadership and Administration Undergraduate Program at UMass Boston. Maury is a graduate of Boston of Barnard College at, of Columbia University and received her MBA from Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. It is my pleasure to welcome Maury to After the Pleasure. Maury, before we start, and I read you, and as I said, I've known you for a long time, <laughs> and I read in your book that you say you're an introvert. Really? I really am. First of all, hi, Bob. It's so good to connect with you. It's been far too long. We only get to talk to each other like once a year. So this is a treat. Um, but I am. Nobody really thinks that, but particularly because I, I teach for a living. So I'm in front of people all the time. But I am an introvert. I, uh, I enjoy sort of more intimate gatherings. I enjoy being with close friends. Um, but outside of that, I'm not a big, like, throw me in a party, big conference person, which is why I'm usually just hanging out with you guys at the Sports Lawyers Association. It's, uh, I, I shy away from those things, but I, I'm definitely, I lean towards introvert for sure. Okay. I, you know yourself better than I know you, but <laughs> you've always been what I would consider more of an A personality, always sort of taking charge. <laughs> Maury's always the one organizing uh, the Black affinity group we have at the Sports Lawyers Association. She's sort of the the rallying force. So an introvert, you know yourself better than, than I. <laughs> tell me, tell me a little bit about your career and yourself, and 
uh, a lot of it is in your book, which I found very interesting. I found out more. Uh, I learned more about you by reading your book than just by sitting at these dinners that we've had over the years. But tell me a little bit about your career. Right. So hence why I'm an introvert, because I don't really talk my, about myself much. But the book was sort of very self-revealing. So born in Iran, um, we immigrated to the United States at the brink of the revolution in 78, 79, 1978, 79. And um, so I've grown up in the U.S. basically, um, first on the East Coast, um, in the sort of Boston area, Massachusetts, and then New Jersey, New York. Um, and while I was in college, my entire family moved to the Bay Area. So I moved out there for a while and for about 14 years and now live in D.C., Washington, D.C., which is, by the way, the only place I don't work. Um, it's where I commute to wherever I'm teaching or my speaking engagements. So um, and people always say, well, why live there? It's very easy to get out of Washington, D.C. Not only is it a beautiful city, but we have three airports and a train station. So it works. I started my career uh, in public health. Um and uh, had always been really interested in being in sports, not not because of sort of the fandom of it all, but really about sort of what I considered the social impact of sports and um, its ability to to impact communities, to educate communities, to bring people together, and be a, be a big influencer. And um, I started doing a lot of I started my company first of all in 1997, which is really around creating big social marketing campaigns. Um, and working with uh, high-risk populations, diverse populations, and that's sort of where a lot of my work around diversity and now DEI really um, started. And um, we used professional athletes, um, sort of really well-known individuals in the entertainment industries um, to run a lot of these big marketing campaigns so that they could, again, influence and educate communities. And we did that nationally and then globally. Um, when I went to get my MBA at Wharton, Ken Shropshire, who's a dear friend of both of ours, um, he uh, was my negotiations professor um, my very last semester at Wharton and somehow thought that I would, I should think about teaching as a career um, or at least just think about doing it for a while until I really figured out kind of my next chapter. And I have no idea to this day, we still struggle to find out why he thought that, but here I am 18 years later teaching at the Wharton School. Um, I got my, uh, um, I started teaching there almost short, shortly after I graduated actually, and, and have been there since, um, teaching undergrads, MBAs, executive MBAs, uh, you name it, um, in the legal studies and business ethics department there. Um, and outside of that, you know, over the years, I've done a lot of work in sports, not necessarily negotiations, which people immediately say, did you negotiate this person's contract? I'm like, no, absolutely not. I do a lot of, I do more education than anything else. So with agents and athletes, I've done a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion work in sports, um, and um, a lot of actually international development work too. So using sports as a platform for social and economic development. So. It's sort of my first love, um, but I've done so much of this sort of negotiations, um, teaching and speaking engagements since the book came out at poorly timed, by the way, in March 24th, 2020, um, that it's taken up so much of my time. But um, it's been quite the journey. So and I'm going to get back. You said something that interests me, and I promised you when I asked you to do this, that we would probably go off of the topics that I said. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but you did talk about making a social impact in the sports world, uh, and 
I just read that Phil Jackson, who was a Laker coach and New York Nick coach, and just said that he's turned off from the NBA because of uh, they're too politically aware, or as they're saying, I hate the word, but the the woke thing. What do you think? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. The sports. Uh, and I always say political correctness or, or wokeness is really just being considerate of other people's feelings. But right. talk about what kind of impact sports makes on the general discussion about social change. Yeah, I'm not a, definitely not a big fan of the word woke. Um, I think at this point in 23, especially in the U.S. where we're truly, truly a melting pot, um, to not be socially aware and respectful and understanding of all the cultures, the sort of the magnificent diversity that this country has is is insane. And um, you know, I teach a subject that you know the beauty of it is the back and forth, is the conversation, is finding a middle ground, is better understanding. So, you know, sports and how it leads into all this. You know, I, again, I started at a very young age. Um, you know, we had left Iran during a really bad sort of political climate during a, a coup d'état, basically. And coming to the United States and sort of falling in love with the world of sports was really from the perspective of how it brought people together, right? Coming from a place that was so divided, I came to a place where you, know, you could go to any arena, you could go to any stadium and watch people for two hours, three hours, convening around a certain team or players. Um, and it was, to me, really magical. And so that's where it kind of all started. And then when I tried to sort of find my path and find what I really wanted to do in sports, it was really sort of pursuing still that passion because I think that athletes particularly have an incredible ability. You know, this is back in the day where we didn't know who influencers are and like the way we talk about them now, but they're the true influencers. And they have the ability to to go back and reinvest in their communities. They have the ability to to do a lot of social social good. Um, and we've seen it actually over the past few years just around the sort of social justice issues. So I think sports influences. I think music influences. I think entertainment influences. And to, to be in a world that we have so many issues that we have to deal with and not to think that sports should play a role in, again, bringing people together or raising really important subjects that a lot of people are too afraid to even talk about. I'm a huge fan of that. And I've done work internationally around economic and social impact of sports. So, you know, using basketball as a platform for leadership development for kids, the same with baseball. Um, and, you know, I could go on forever about that, but it's universal, um, it's impactful, and it allows people to listen to the messages in a way that you may not otherwise be able to have them listen to me, right? Because it's, it's again, it's influential. Now, there is this division of church and state kind of thing that people want. You know, I want to watch my football game and not be worried about um, politics. The truth is, I can understand that, but, but our whole world is so politicized. So it's like, how do you even get away from it? Um, I think athletes should speak their voices. They're, they're human beings and they stand for things and they should follow their convictions. But, you know, to think that you go to, a game and you leave everything behind is nice for some people, but for others, it's a little bit naive because we are in this world. We may find escapism in sports, but we're also highly um, influenced by it in our daily lives for good, bad, or otherwise. So I'm a big proponent of sports playing an active role um, in these issues uh, because 
again, athletes are humans. Communities need sometimes that extra push. And so again, yeah, I don't, I don't agree. But this is completely, you know, personal to me. It's my journey, my lived experience that makes me feel this way. Right. It's it's really unfair to the athletes to think that they're just there for our entertainment and they're not dealing with life issues as well. And why shouldn't they be able to speak out on things that may affect themselves or their families or their environment? Absolutely. Uh, it really just isn't fair. So every man in the world knows not to ask a woman how old he was. So I wasn't going to ask you, but when, how old were you when you came to, uh, came to the United States from Iran? Um, I was seven, eight years old. I don't mind speaking about my age. Right. So. And, and uh, were you aware of what you were leaving and what you were coming to? I mean, how was that adjustment for you as a, as a, as a seven-year-old? Yeah, but I was actually really aware. And it's interesting because when I, I sort of recall things, they're quite vivid. Um, and I think after sort of talking to therapists and, and dealing with sort of life issues, what I've realized is that there was so much sort of in some ways childhood trauma in that way. And and kind of the uplifting and sort of rerouting yourselves in a new place. And even though we had visited the States many times, my brother and my sister went to school here. But, you know, you leave a lot behind. Um, I do remember. I remember um, Iran as a secular country. Um, uh, and those are sort of the, the vi really vivid memories. Um, and then I also remember sort of the shakeup and leaving. And I think I also remember it most because of the impact that it had on my parents um, and how difficult it was then and it has been in leaving um, a country that they loved behind and 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 for forever basically. That goodbye ended up being a forever goodbye. They've gone back and visited, but you know, you are you start a new life not necessarily by choice, but because your youngest daughter is so young she can't go away by herself. And so I think that's a pretty big that was a pretty big uh, sort of burden on my back, but a responsibility for them. And have you, have you been back? Uh, I have not. You have not? I have not. The only member of my family who has not been back, my sister, my brother, they've been back a lot, actually. My parents had gone back. Um, I would love, love, love to go back. I've just never been afforded the opportunity to go for sort of a long period of time. I can't remember ever taking a vacation for a long period of time. So... Um, but one of these days, I'm going to carve out, even if it's a short amount of time, to visit Iran yeah. for sure. Not right now. Political climate is not really right for that. But I'm very proud of the culture, and I would I would love to go back and visit. Right. I think you have to make time to do that for yourself. I mean, that's part of closure or Absolutely. understanding. So I, I hope you do that. Your your book was uh, there were a lot of stories in it about your father and how mm -hmm. he wanted you to be a doctor and. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and all of that stuff. What, what made you decide to write a book and then reveal so much about yourself? And, and why did you pick the topic of negotiations? I'll start with the last one. Um, you know, I had already been teaching for probably about six, seven years when the process started. I was encouraged to do it um, by a um, sort of a mentor and, and um, very big uh, supporter of mine at, at Goldman Sachs Foundation, where I teach. And um, he had sort of talked about the magic that I created in the classroom. And he said, I think this is something you should consider. Your approach, approach is very different. And at first, I thought, and I had an agent very, very quickly. So I sort of wanted to kind of maybe explore this. And at first, I was like, there's no need for another negotiations book. There's so many out there. And I thought, until I found an angle that was different, 
I didn't want to be just another author writing another negotiations book. So it took me about four years, to be honest with you, to do sort of that soul searching and finding where I thought the gaps were, right? The the open spaces. And one of them um, really is the one I sort of jumped into, which was a lot of myths around negotiations and many of which actually preclude people from even going to the table. They cause a lot of anxiety in people. People have very bad memories of the negotiations that they've done, deals that they've done, or they just attribute it to being this kind of win-lose, like battle royale, you know, things that they see in the movies um, and, you know, contentious and aggressive. And, you know, I had been really successful teaching the subject from a very different place, which was, it's not about that, that first of all, we do this every single day. So it's silly to say you don't negotiate or you don't like to negotiate because it's the language of our life. It's everything that we do all day long with everybody around us from business to personal stuff to negotiating with yourself. So I wanted to dispel kind of that that myth because I think that people are actually better negotiators than they think they are because we have so much practice at it every single day. The other myth is that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of books that have been written and, and there are quite a few that are incredibly good and we all come from different places, right? And so my perspective is that negotiations is not a prescriptive topic. And so I, I didn't want to be another book that said, if you say this and then you say this and then you do that, then you will get the right outcome. Because I think that that's a really sort of false notion. I think that you can never guarantee something like that. You're not following instructions. So I wanted to write a book that told people and gave people permission to be exactly who they are and be their authentic self and make this a conversation that was a process, a really elegant process in some ways that included the back and forth um, so that people wouldn't be so afraid. And and again, giving them permission not to emulate some character they've seen in a movie or how they've been told in a class that they should sort of, you know, arrive at a negotiations, but to really find their full confidence in themselves. And I truly believe when we're more confident, we're better negotiators. A lot of other myths, but that was my... That's what I really wanted to do with this book. Now, how it ended up being, you know, almost an autobiography, I use stories to teach in class. I like to make negotiations really um, accessible. And I've had, at this point, you know, thousands and thousands of students, both at uh, Wharton and through all my other work. And I thought, you know, the best lessons can come from these stories because it's a very human subject. And uh, my publisher, uh, once I had given them, well, once we, the, the book was purchased and, and um, we started talking, they, thought, they said, but we want more of Maury. There's something very authentic about this, but without more of a voice from you, it sort of feels like that's sort of the, the missing link here. And so it wasn't as much of my life story as it ended up being, which again, ended up being very self-revealing. Um, I got to be honest, a lot of things in that book, nobody knew about me and not even sort of friends and close close friends and family members. Um, it was sort of like, hey, I've arrived kind of a thing. Um, but I wanted to do something that would help people. And I thought that my truth, particularly my struggles and mistakes that I had made, um, would be really instrumental in, in people both being more comfortable with the subject, but also learning that you can see so much of one another, so much of yourself in other people and know that that's a really sort of great way of, of learning and approaching the subject. Let me see what else you asked. Oh, my dad. <laughs> yes, my dad. 
when we left Iran, and even when I was really, really young, uh, my dad had always wanted one of his kids to be a doctor. And my brother, who's 14 years older than me, said no. He became an engineer. My sister said no. And she's 10 years older than me. So I was like the last great hope. And, you know, they left really for my education. They left Iran for my education. So when we came to the States, it was sort of in pursuit of, I did it. I followed sort of that that road for a very long time. And it took me to go through college to realize that it just wasn't the place for me. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do medicine at a very micro level. I wanted to do something that affected people and communities in a much bigger way. And that sounds, you know, like, you know, sort of fairy tale-ish. But at that point, I thought I could. I thought that that whatever I pursued, it wasn't, it, it had to be sort of bigger in a way. Um, and I wasn't, you know, the subject wasn't, you know, the, the biology classes and the chemistry classes, it was like swimming upstream for me at all times. And I thought, you know, this isn't the path for me. So I went into public health first thinking that that may be it and then ended up sort of where I am. But I had to, I had to sort of find my way and I had to find my purpose and medicine just, just wasn't it much to his chagrin actually. (laughs) He he forgave you before he passed away. Oh, um, he was pr- he was proud of you for what you've accomplished and what you've done. I would hope. I don't always know. I don't I don't always know if uh, you know somebody we'd be in a I don't know in a grocery store or something if somebody fell or did something they'd be like and if only you were a doctor you could help. <laughs> I, you know I I hope so. I've I've struggled with that a lot, but I would hope so. I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. So you talk about being yourself in a, in a negotiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had a, I've had several people uh, who I've worked with uh, who I've observed their negotiation style. And I had one boss who was an older lawyer and uh, very smart. And he was in a, we were in a meeting and he was negotiating and he smashed his hand down on the table and he screamed. And I mean, he basically got everybody in the room kind of petrified. And then he turned to me and he winked. Uh, and like, he says, well, I got them. So do you ever, as a negotiator, do you ever role play fake anger, fake uh, something so that you can get a point across or, or you know, uh, emote something that may not be typical of you? No, no, no. I, I don't, again, I don't prescribe to that. and. And it's not to say that people aren't successful doing these things, um, but the way I see it, I think that, first of all, negotiations is, again, it's about human beings and sort of the way we show up and the pretension in that, the having to sort of sit there and think, well, what am I supposed to do now to get their attention or how am I going to show them that I'm angry even though I'm actually okay with what they just offered me? Like there's so much energy that's going into figuring out what you're supposed to be as opposed to more of your energy going towards, you know, being your best self and being showing up exactly in the way that you want to achieve the interests that you want to, you know, to accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish. So I'm not a big fan of that. Again, I'm not going to put anybody down because it's, it would be silly there. Again, there's many people I'm sure who are very successful doing that. I've seen it. It's just not the road I like to travel, and I don't want to teach it in that way. You know, I do more teaching than anything else. I love teaching, um, and part of it is that I feel like to be able to make people proud of who they are, to make people allow people to find their voice, to have people to feel 
like it's okay to show up exactly as they are. Because again, if you're forming relationships with people, it's based on your authenticity. So I just, I can't do it, Bob. I think that that's, you know, what are you going to do the next time, right? The next time you have conversations with these people, you have to go back into that role again. Um, it seems silly. It seems a wasted effort, to be honest with you. So what, what about the other way? I, one, I've said to myself and to other people I've talked to, so my biggest regrets is when I've lost my temper uh, right. at, in some situation. If you're being yourself all the time and you lose your temper, is anger ever a good way to conduct a negotiation? No, um, I think there is a place for emotion in negotiations, because if I'm saying, you know, you should just be authentic, then showing happiness or, you know, even if you're upset about something like, you know, to be able to exercise that emotional intelligence and to know how far you take that, I think is really important. But again, it's human, right? And human beings have feelings and emotions. And I think that's what creates connectivity. But emotions should never get ahead of you. Um, and for many reasons, one of which is you can't do sort of critical thinking when you're all fired up, right? And and anger doesn't allow you to be, to exercise better judgment or, or to have clarity of, of thought. So um, it's not that, you know, showing sort of who Bob is at that moment is a bad thing. It's just the, when you hit that other level where you can't express yourself the way you want to express yourself and maybe even regret it later, but also to not be able to see clearly, I think that's the that's when things go wrong. So, you know, and it's not magical. I swear it's like people say, well, what should I do? Walk away, take a break, breathe. I mean, these are the most simple of things, but what those things allow you to do is just to regain your control um, and to settle back into um, sort of this, this ability to be more clear and, and have better judgment, but also to hear one another better. Because if you're yelling and they're yelling, I mean, it's a mess. Uh, look at our politics these days, right? There's no, there's, you can't see, you can't even understand people when you're sort of going down that rabbit hole. So I think that that, that limits you, whereas just having emotions and allowing them to inform you is not a bad thing. Right. I always said that one of the, the best football coach I think is and uh, Bill Belichick, and I think one of the reasons he's the best is he's taken the emotion out of his decision making as much yeah. as he can. So yeah. and you know and I have I've worked for people who are who they don't like that person so that clouds their judgment, clouds yeah. their decision yeah. making, and, and I think that's a mistake. So part I, of you know, a lot of your book you talk about empathy, and you mm -hmm. sort of touched about a little bit on that just now. Tell me about empathy in a in a negotiations context? Um, I think about, and I think people, I've realized that people sort of um, define empathy in you know, very different ways. Um, and what I try to do in the book, and really when I talk about empathy is to say in my description of empathy, what I mean by it is just to be very curious. It's like extreme curiosity. And it's this you know, notion of being able to walk in someone's shoes. It's not to take on somebody's um, sort of uh, problems. It's not to sort of weigh yourself down in that way, but it's really to be able to better understand who they are and their life experiences, what makes them unique, what what is of interest to them and what their goals are. Um, and those things, as you know, don't come at that moment that you're having negotiations. They come way before that, right? They're, they're sort of your life experience. And so if you can understand people in that way, that deeply, then 
you can a better influence them and better persuade them because you can come at this issue from their perspective in a way that they can understand it. But you also may find that there's a better way to think about this whole thing, right? That, that there were things that in gaps in your knowledge that you didn't have that will maybe even shift the way you think and have a better outcome, right? So I think to use empathy, I think that's our superpower, honestly. And I think it it connects us, it humanizes us. Um, people think that it weakens us, but I am. I think it's absolutely not that. I think it's actually the other side of it. I think, I think empathy, if you can actually make yourself more empathetic and more curious as you approach, spe- specifically in negotiations, it allows you to have better judgment and it allows you to think in a much bigger sort of space rather than leading with certainty and leading with bias. And I know you and I have had these conversations, but the stereotypical way that we approach people and the biases that we all have, um, those always end up getting us in trouble because we're not being empathetic. We're being, we're leading with what we are certain of, which isn't always actually, most of the times it's actually wrong. So you talk about, we negotiate with everybody our family Mm -hmm. members, our children, our friends, our colleagues. uh, And you know those people. You kind of know them from where they are. But when you're negotiating with someone, a third party, uh, but I I, I think it applies when you're negotiating with someone you know. How do you prepare for your negotiation with someone? What do you do? do? Uh, I mean, I think empathy comes in part of it. You try to put yourself in, in that person's place or Trying right. to understand where they're coming from. What do you do when you'd say, "I, you know, I'm going to negotiate with, you know, Bob about X"? And right. what's your process of getting ready for that? I start with myself first, um, not the other side. And um, I, I think it's really important to know yourself first um, to sort of do that introspection to know exactly what it is that you're looking for, not not like in terms of specific things, but really as a whole, right? What's driving you? What's motivating you to even have this conversation? And to do that, it means that you have to better understand yourself. Um, you have to dig deep sometimes. You have to, you know, sort of, I always say, know yourself first, and that includes knowing your values and how you want to, you want to conduct yourself, how you want to be remembered. And once you do that, and, and you do your goal setting, by the way, and you are, you know, always, I hope, aspirational because the, the, more, um, the more we see our own value, the more we want to ask for. Um, so once you do that work, which is actually really very hard because it, it requires some, some transparency and vulnerability with yourself, then I talk about sort of the other side. Um, and that's where the empathy comes in. Um, that's where uh, you want to consider even sort of their backgrounds, how they hear things, you know, how you can communicate something to someone. You know, there are people that are very analytical, so you want to approach them with the numbers, with analytics, and there are other people that are more values-based, and and you want to approach them in that way. And so that, again, goes back to how do you, how do you influence people? How do, you, how do you talk to people in a way that they can hear you and it'll matter? Um, as opposed to them shutting you down because they can't even hear what you're saying because it's a doesn't even interest them, but doesn't apply to them in any way, and you're not even speaking really the same language. So um, I think preparation starts with you, and then you look outward. Um, and 
I never think you can be overprepared, by the way, in negotiations. I think there's always another another angle that you can you can look at things, another way to frame things. But yeah, I think preparation is deep and it's it's long. I mean, you you should spend quite a bit of time doing this. And even if it's friends and family, by the way, just another note, it's not different the way you prepare for um, negotiations with people that you know and people you don't know. In fact, I think with people you do know, you have to do even more of your homework and, and open your heart more because we're not very curious about people that we know, which always seems to get us in trouble. But um, yeah, curiosity in preparation, both about yourself and about the person you're negotiating with is really important. So you also talk a lot about the difference between men and women and how they approach things. And your examples are the men were maybe overconfident and the women were underconfident in, in mm -hmm. a lot of your negotiation class. Talk about gender in negotiations. Are there differences in styles? Are, or should there be differences uh, in terms of being yourself? Uh, should, a, should a man try to be more empathetic, more sensitive, less confident? Should a woman be the opposite, more you know, less empathetic, more confident, more, you know, what, what do you think the stereotypes of gender do to a negotiation? Yeah, um, I think everybody should be confident. So I think women always have a, have um, really good look, role models if we actually look at men, especially if you think about the um, pay um, equity gap in, in, in salaries and what have you, um, there's something to be learned. And I, I don't like thinking about, I don't even like going sort of to conferences where there's all women speaking to all women, because I think that there's lessons to be learned across genders. So that's sort of my feeling around, around that. Um, I think that, of course, women and men negotiate differently because we communicate differently. But generalizations are sort of hard, even though that's how sort of a lot of the research has been done. But I think anybody that considers themselves an other, so this could be race, it could be gender, um, it could be age. Um, I think that when you feel like you aren't necessarily invited to that table, that people don't think you actually should have a seat at that table, then it precludes you from wanting to be at that table, right? It creates great anxiety. And so I think that women in that sense, because of, and it's not our imagination, I mean, studies prove this, that there's a lot of sort of the social price of, of negotiations is very real. I think that when um, people already have these biases and stereotypes, that they you're basically walking into that, right? And um, you know, studies show that that you know women may are not likely to ask for a higher sort of starting salary when they go um, to seek a job, whereas men men more what men do than women. Um, and that's probably a pretty big gap, actually, like it, the, this very famous sort of Carnegie Mellon study that was done, um, uh, Linda Babcock, who's, who's big in sort of the gender uh, negotiations area of, of study, um, showed that like women were just under 13% uh, of those women in that graduating class um, of the public health school were negoti had negotiated their starting salaries, whereas men, it was upwards of 50%. Um, and that gap still persists, studies show that. And so if you think about that, it's not that women aren't necessarily good negotiators, we really are, because when we do negotiate, especially on other people's behalf, we are shown to actually do even better than that. It's that we are so concerned with these the stereotypes and we've bought so much into where we should be and how people see us 
that it it doesn't a allow us to even pursue those things right we won't even approach the negotiations but it's also what's in our heads when we are negotiating or how we're planning because you're so worried about what people think um, what they're going to hold against you, how you should act, should you smile, or, you know, should you be more more tough? And then the stereotypes that come with all those things. And it's a lot, it's a lot to consider. So it's not necessarily a comfortable place when you don't allow yourself to just be. Um, and I, I don't know, I, and I don't think actually that men oftentimes have those same struggles. But races do, you know, again, it's a, it's it's not just a gender issue. It's that anytime you feel like you are somebody who's different, then I think you sort of fall into those same challenges as far as negotiation. So how do you deal with it from the other side? It's it, You're confident. You don't care about how you act. But the concern is the the person who you're directing, who you're negotiating with, may take it either if you're African-American, is that you're, you know, right. you're, you're angry, or you're a woman, you're too aggressive. Right. Uh, you know, the body language that comes with those things for men and women are different. I care in the sense, or I tell people to care in the sense of actually um, coming from a place of emotional intelligence and being really aware of how you're affecting somebody else, right? So if my actions are making you uncomfortable, it's going to keep you from being able to hear me. Um, so in that sense, I think you have to have social awareness, um, especially if you want to engage them in a way that's beneficial to you. Um, people's body language, you know, most people don't even have to say a word and you know exactly what they're thinking, right? That arms crossed, that stern look on their face, it's not welcoming. And so, you know, chances are that if the conversation doesn't start in a way that's welcoming and open, it's going to end that way. And so, um, and I think that that goes well beyond just gender. It's sort of maybe cultural, the way we've been raised, the way we've been told to act. Um, And so, I think you have to have that level of self-awareness so that you can, again, be able to influence the other party. But the place where I say, okay, you draw that line is that if you feel disrespected, if you feel like you are not being welcomed into a place that you should absolutely be welcomed to, into, then you get up and you leave or you use that opportunity to educate, not, not you know, um, yelling at somebody and, and getting angry at them, but finding out maybe how you could better communicate with them. But again, if they draw, if you have a line and you say, this person crosses this line, I can't do business with them. I can't communicate with them. Then you save that for yourself. You create that space and you walk out. Um, but I think that we're quick to judge. I think that we're quick to get angry when somebody says something that we don't like. Um, and, you know, we see a lot of that these days. You know, we talk about the whole woke con- concept. Um, i rather educate somebody than to get angry with them because I feel like if I have the conversation with you, regardless of how hard it is what I just heard from you or the way you acted, I'd rather have that conversation because then I feel like that may affect you and the way you behave going forward as opposed to, yelling at somebody and, you know, screaming bloody murder, because then what are you doing? You're probably even feeding more into whatever stereotype they had of you. And that doesn't open hearts and minds. So um, I think it's very individual. I think that people react to things and should react to things the way, you know, obviously they do. Everybody's boundaries are different, but mine is of this notion of there's a lot of ignorance and, you know, use this opportunity to educate. So you talk about 
walking away, uh, you know, can't negotiate with them. If you're a lawyer, for instance, or, or, or an agent, you're negotiating on behalf of somebody. Uh, and one of the things that someone, that people talk about in negotiations, and, and it's true in life, is leverage. Who has the leverage? And what happens if you don't have the leverage? What happens? And when I advise family members or friends of mine about a negotiation they're with, I say, I might do this, but you have to make the decision whether you can afford to walk mm -hmm. away from this right. from this opportunity. How do you deal with those? You know, the conflicts of you know. I don't really have. I really can't afford to walk away, uh, right. but I don't think you know this is not what I want out of this transaction. Yeah. So leverage is really interesting because studies show us that it's perception based. Um, so if the other party or counterparty thinks that you have leverage, then you have leverage. <laughs> Whether that's true or not, it's really sort of how they perceive you that's important. And I think that's really. I think that's actually a great great news for most people because it's not really how much money you have or how big the company is or or any of that. It's really about what they perceive you to have. Um, and I don't mean you're making it up. It's about the confidence that you show and, you know, standing sort of in a place that that shows sort of your power. And again, not power in a bad way, but power in the confidence that you have in yourself and what you're bringing to the table. So being that it's perception based, I think, again, you have to be super aware of how you show up, how you behave, what kind of words you use, all these things really matter. But you know, and I know, anytime you don't, the less you need a deal, the more leverage you have, right? Because it's that power of being able to say, this does not work for me, so thanks, but no thanks. And that's very powerful because either you have a bat nine, you know, you have another alternative that you can pursue, or you have time, or simply that this is my this was my bottom line, and you're it, going past this will simply be a bad deal. So if you can walk, amazing. That is that is that is sort of the height of all leverage. But then you the opposite of that is that the more you need a deal, um, and the more you're sort of pushed into that you know back up against the wall because you can't walk away from it. And you know, worked with a lot of small business owners and entrepreneurs. Pandemic was really hard in that way, right? Things are unsure, things are chaotic. You don't know when that next contract is coming. So leverage was decreased as a result of that. And, and definitely, at least in their mind, right? There was fear, there was anxiety because you're likely to take deals that maybe you wouldn't otherwise just to be able to keep the lights on and to keep sort of uh, your employees and not have to make cuts you make decisions that were different. It's largely because you don't feel that you have leverage because you can't make a decision to not take some of those deals. So I think anytime you can say, I can work this deal until you know it, it, it actually is, is good for me and good for you, but at some point, I don't need it. Um, and the point is where I'm either worse off or it's not likely to benefit me, I can walk away. That confidence you show and you carry. Right. I, it, it, I always tell people it's it's easier to get a job when you have a job because yeah, then you have the, you have the leverage of being able to say, you know, I'm doing this because it's going to improve my situation, not because I have to have a paycheck coming in. And, and that oh, that's yes. a great that's a great freedom to have. So what about, you know, in the football world, which is where I had most of my negotiations, uh, is this tell them this is the best we're going to do. This is our final offer. What do you think of that strategy? I never liked it myself. I always I say, I, I always want to have myself the ability to 
adjust. Uh, right. And to, for me to say that, that you're basically saying take it or leave it. Uh, and in the football world in the past, you could get away with that because there was not a lot of free agency, not a lot of movement. Right. But right. I, I, in the business, what do you think of that that strategy? I don't like it either, Bob. I think I think to your point, it's you're backing yourself up to, in a corner, right? And you are not allowing for flexibility. Uh, flexibility. I think it's a power move, um, but I, I think it can actually backfire on you. You better be certain that that is your last and final offer because what you're essentially saying is this is my bottom line. Bottom lines are not flexible. They are what they are. So you can't change your mind. Um, the minute you shift and they're like, oh, so you did have more money, right? That wasn't really your bottom line. and. And that then allows people to sort of take advantage of that. So I think that, I, again, I love negotiations because I like the back and forth. I love negotiations because I like that dynamic. And when you come in and say, this is the last offer, it's often because people don't want to make space for those conversations. I just don't, I don't, I don't think it is what people think it is. I actually think it sort of weakens you. Um, in a in a lot of ways because it's not allowing you to, to your, you used a great word the adjustment right it doesn't allow you to make adjustments it's not flexible so in the sports world you know I always say there's a difference between a sports negotiation and a car accident negotiation <laughs> you know the chances that me and you are going to run into each other in a car more than once are not great right. uh, but the chances are once we sign a sports contract whether it's a sponsorship contract, whether it's a playing contract, it's really, whether it's a marriage contract, it's really the beginning of our relationship. So, you know, you don't really want to back people into a corner and you want to have the ability to adjust. Do you, you know, and you, you said in your book, you didn't like the, the win-win situation or the loss-loss situation where everybody, nobody, everybody doesn't get what they want. Uh, but one person, one group, you know, or one side of the negotiation doesn't win and the other side loses. Yeah, you're really, I mean, business, the business of sports is a is a business of relationships. Absolutely. Um, fundamentally, it's about reputations and connections and what have you. And you're likely to not only see each other again, but do deals over and over and over again. And so um, it does drive that business. I think that this concept of win-win or, you know, some people say it's lose-lose because you're neither one of you is totally happy, but win-win just means that you're happy enough. You're both happy enough. And it allows you to create a deal without there being acrimony and anger and, and sort of a very disruptive process. And that alone, just enjoying that process together allows you to come back again, right? We choose the people we want to do business with. And I think that negotiations sets sort of that standard. It sets the groundwork. And so, yes, um, you know, going to negotiations all this time, thinking I'm going to lower my goal just to make you happy. Absolutely not. You should always take care of yourself first or whoever you're working on behalf of and have those sort of aspirational goals and want the best for yourself, for your cl client. But you can't forget that there's another side to this. And maybe just maybe the deal that allows you to both take something um, that makes you happy enough and leave something on the on the table so that the other person doesn't think that they gave up everything is what's going to lead to not just a better deal today, but to deals 
and even increasingly better deals in perpetuity because they're going to say, you know what, I really liked working with Bob. Um, and if I have to negotiate with him again, that's who I want to choose because because I like Bob. I think we underestimate likability. Um, I think it's really important. And that comes with, with this whole notion of win-win, right? Finding a place where both of you can be happy enough. Right. I think and you, we talked a little bit about it before is relationships, likability, uh, integrity, you know, your word meaning something. I used to, some people want to enter a negotiation and give a low ball offer so then mm-hmm. they can move quite a bit. I always wanted to give a, a negotiation, uh, an offer, my first offer. Uh, mm-hmm. And I never had a problem giving my first offer because, you know, we had established a value of what we thought a player was should be paid. And right. That doesn't mean that you know. So they said, "Well, you only you only moved a little bit," but I was close to where we where we should be anyway. So right. I always thought that was more important. Do you do, do you like starting low, or uh, if, if you have established yourself as a, with a reputation of he's fair and he's going to be right around where we should right. where he's going to end up? What do you think of that strategy? Um, I think that's probably why you were so successful and you've been so successful because. Um, I think that it's important to respect your your counterpart. Um, and I think that inherently when you come to the table and you have the facts and you have the figures and you have the data and you have the experience, then to come through with an opening offer that doesn't turn the other person off is actually brilliant. Because again, one, you won't have this prolonged battle you'll start somewhere that is really generally in that place where you're probably going to end. Um, and you can take away the pain of, you know, the headbutting and instead spend more of your time being strategic together and finding a place that's going to make again, both sides happy, but then leave that good taste in your mouth. And I think that people, and again, Bob, this is cultural for some people, it's personality. So I can't say it's the wrong thing to do. I just don't, you know, people in some places, even if you're a tourist in certain countries, are like, you know, they are going to start their their negotiations at, you know, four times what this price should be. They're not trying to be disrespectful. That's sort of part of that culture. But right. we choose what we want to do. But in my world, in your world, again, when relationships are so important, why not come in from a place that's educated, that is that sort of looking at market values, that's looking at data, and you lead with that because I think it's it actually even looks better for you. You you appear as somebody who's been experienced and is is reputable in that way. So I'm I'm all for that, Bob. I think it's I think again that's probably why um, it's led to much of your success and also the relationships that you have, right? And and you keep people around for a really long time when you approach them with humanity and 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 sort of fairness and and equality as opposed to um, coming down with that really hard hand and trying to crush them. That's That does you no good. I, uh, Pete Rosell was well known for leaving, always leaving something on the table for his network yeah. partners. And, you know, I, I think the NFL's changed a little bit on that where they're not necessarily looking to leave anything on the table. They're getting everything they can uh, from the beginning. Uh, what about, you know, the thing I I hate more than anything, and I, again, one of the things I used to try to do when I negotiate a lot of, is be first. Uh, I always think the guy who goes first, if he knows what he's doing, is going to get the best deal. Uh, and instead, you know, the, the 
the old adage that deadlines spur action. Well, they may, but they don't necessarily spur good action. What do you think about the deadline negotiations? We're waiting to the last minute to get it to get it to really deal in earnest. I don't like that either. That's sort of like that that um, you know final offer approach, right? It's sort of backing yourself up into a corner, and I don't think deadlines necessarily are real. I mean, maybe that's actually the first negotiations is negotiating the deadline because they're sort of made up unless it's a, you know, it's a line of credit or a loan where, you know, it's based on sort of APRs and, and, and market values and interest rates. You know, the deadlines are sort of, they come usually from the parties wanting to enforce that boundary, right? Um, there are rules, right? They're, they're, you know, in all the leagues we see this, but and, and those deadlines are respected. But outside of that, this whole notion of we need an answer by Monday generally actually puts as much pressure on you as the other party. So I don't believe in that. I also don't believe that it's any one party's role to have to put up the opening offer. I think the it's, you know, some people say it's wise to make the opening offer. Other people say never make the opening offer. I think the person who has the most information should make the opening offer. And you're going to find that out through your preparation and in talking to them before that op opening offer is made. Um, and you know, it, it anchors the rest of the conversation. So it's, it's actually quite powerful, that opening offer. But there, the rules aren't, you know, the buyer or the seller, or, you know, I'll ne I never will, or I always will. The rules should be, how informed am I? And, and should, should I make this opening offer and they accept it? Will I be happy with it? Because they can't. Right. It, it goes back to what you said, the final offer or, uh, you know, deadlines. That means if you're saying there's no room to make an adjustment, then there's no room to make an adjustment. So it's not and if there is, it's not the final offer. And if it is, there's no deadline. Now, there may be a deadline in a in a, in a league or, or a team sport or something. Well, if you're not here by the first game of the season, you're not going to get paid your 17 weeks. So that, that is a real deadline. Uh, but that doesn't mean you there aren't ways to get around it right. if you really want to. So yeah. as we come close to the end, I want to get your thoughts on uh, Lamar Jackson and him negotiating his own contract. Uh, what do you think of that? That is, is that a good way to go? Is that a, is it a hard way to go? Uh, um, if you were, if you were his sister, what would you be advising him? <laughs> or his mother who he's working with, right? Right, um, his mother, right, right. I was, that's why I didn't make it his mother. Yeah, I can't wait to see sort of the business school case on this one, um, because I do actually think that it'll set a precedent one, one way or another. Um, look, one of the most talented quarterbacks, he's electrifying. I mean, there's no doubt in any of that. Um, do I think that his choice to use an agent or not use an agent, which he does not use an agent, he sort of does this work. Um, and, you know, he said his mother, and I'm sure that he has other advisors. I think that, you know, athletes are the athletes of today are smart. Um, they're they're well versed because I would say like the internet made all the difference in the world, right? It's sort of democratized information, and you know, is it beneficial? Well, surely it's if you're a more frugal person, which at that point when you're talking those numbers, I mean, it's one and a half, three and a half percent. It's a lot of money. So if that's what is leading your decision making then yeah, you're going to be saving that money. Um, and the other part of it is that you're exercising more control, which I think is what he wants to do. 
Um, the opposite side of that is that agents are who they are because they're experienced, right? They're well versed. They have, you know, they know things like the CBA and all the, you know, sort of the intricacies of, of you know, writing term sheets and contracts and what have you. Um, so that experience is, you know, could be worth that one and a half or three and a half percent or whatever it is. Um, so I think there's, there's, the good and the bad. Would I say that maybe the fact that he hasn't had he doesn't have this deal in hand yet could be as a result of him not having an agent? Yeah, I would probably attribute it to that. Though an agent can't make a decision without you being okay with it. Right. Um, I do think that the 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 reason why this is sort of taking so long could be attributed to that. I think that he has every right to do it. Um, I hope that he makes a deal. Sooner than later, I think what's on the table is 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 pretty rich. But you know, you have examples of somebody like Deshaun Watson out there, and you're thinking, if he can, I can, and I don't carry that baggage. Um, and so, if that's what's dri- driving your thinking, then yeah, you're going to hang out and wait until that deal comes. But I, but I think not having sort of an experienced agent at your side could be the reason why maybe this thing is taking as long as it does. But you know, another thing, you know, this the NFLPA. Um, serves as they serve as advisors. You can pick up the phone and call anybody and say, I want to see the top five contracts or can you help me with this information? So it's not like an athlete is, is hanging out there alone. They have these football players have plenty of, of, you know, advisors that they can call on and services that they can get from the players association. It's just that how fast this moves along, maybe on really understanding the advantages and the disadvantages um, are places where I think somebody who's more experienced maybe and well-versed, and to your point earlier, has the relationships, could actually be quite beneficial. I've suggested that this is because he's representing himself, that this mm-hmm. is a perfect example to bring in a mediator. Yep. Uh, and, you know, to take some of the emotion out. So, you know, and, and I, I do some mediations and you're shuttling back and forth, uh, you know, you're getting permission to disclose things or not disclose things. Uh, and I think that might help the process uh, quite a bit. So I've, I've tried to suggest yeah. to them, why don't we, why don't we, why don't you set up a mediation? Uh, right. And, yeah, and- you're, you're right. You're right. Because, uh, you know, unlike an arbitrator who's making the last and final decision, a mediator is that neutral third party that, right. you know, they can sort of shuffle back and forth between the two parties and, and sort of create an understanding because we stop hearing each other. Right, um, right. And, you know, again, to your point, it, it brings down the temperature. It maybe allows for some clarity. Um, and and I think, you know, I actually think mediation should be used more in sports. Um, I do, because, too. Because it does provide that, you know, we call it in negotiations, we call it going to the balcony when you yourself actually are aware enough that you can pull yourself out of wow. that space and go to a more neutral place. Well, it's hard for human beings to do, especially if they're, they're really sort of tied to something and are really emotional about something. But a mediator uh, uh, can do that for you. And you both, both parties agree on a mediator. I mean, I think it's a, yeah. I think it's a great thing. Yeah, I, I, when I was negotiating for, for the team, uh, I always felt sort of like a mediator because, you know, I, because I was hearing what the player was saying and what he wanted, what he needed. And so I was trying to take that back to the owner to get him to move to where we could make a deal uh, and vice versa. And so I, I was, you know, kind of negotiating with both sides uh, right. to get to where I, where what we all wanted, which was to get the player under, under full. 
Exactly. All right, well, Maury, I've taken a ton of your time. I really appreciate it. And if I was telling a, a purchaser, why should, or you're telling a purchaser, why should you buy my book? Give me three things that are takeaways from your book that you think are really important. After reading it, you'll feel much more empowered um, and more confident in your own your own existing skills because it's a negotiations again is something you do all the time and you have plenty of experiences. I think the other uh, important note to that is not only becoming more confident because you know that you've had experience, but also becoming more confident because you know your value, you understand your worth. And um, my book does a lot to talk about sort of how we see ourselves, right? The sort of imposter syndrome that many of us struggle with across gender. Um, and, and I think that that's really important because it's not often tied to negotiations, but it, I think it plays such an indelible role in it. So being able to sort of uh, clear up that emotional baggage um, is really important. I think lastly, uh, there's stories, right? This isn't a textbook, it's a, it's a story about my life, other people's life. And I think once people read and learn through stories, not only does it make it more accessible, but you don't feel like you're alone. You don't feel like you're the only person that made a mistake, um, but you actually understand that you know there's great resilience and that we can learn from the good and the bad and that mistakes are made, you're better for it. Um, and I think this book is as instrumental in showing sort of successes as it is in showing you know mistakes and challenges and how people sort of rose above that. So it's very human, it's very human. Yeah, I thought it was great. I, I, I read it in the last three days uh, and, and enjoyed it. So it, it's it's an easy read. It, it, you're right. It has some great stories in it. Uh, for those of us who know more, you, you learn more about her than you might have known before. Uh, so it's a great story. And I and I think uh, this was a great conversation, Maury. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. I Thank learned you. some things in it. So and, and, and I hope our audiences enjoyed or will enjoy listening to Maury.